30 miles outside of New York City, nestled in a sleepy Long Island town, is Amityville. There's a house there that stands forever linked to horror and deception. On November 13, 1974, the estate was a scene of mass murder. Using a 35 Marlin rifle, 23-year-old Ronald J. DeFeo Jr. murdered his entire family while they were asleep, which included his parents and four siblings. 13 months later, the Lutz family purchased the home at a drastically reduced price of $80,000, but the family only managed to stay in the house for 28 days before fleeing in fear. But what is the real story of the Amityville horror? Today is March 18th as we record this. 31 years ago to the day was one of the most expensive and biggest art heists ever. And it occurred right here in Boston, March 18th, 1990. Almost $500 million of valued art was taken from the Isabel Stewart Gardner Museum. That's what I'm going to tell you about tonight. All right. From time to time during the How Did We Miss That podcast, we may talk about details of crimes that some may find triggering or disturbing. Listener discretion is highly advised. Okay, well, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of How Did We Miss That? I'm Christine. And I'm John. Are are you ready? Are you ready for this? I'm ready. Because the people can't see, but I can see we have the true crime junkie t-shirt on. I mean, I you know, look, I'm you've ready. never been more ready. I know. Let's get into this. I'm excited about this one, and I'm going to tell you why I'm going to tell you about this story. Because everybody knows Amityville Horror. That's not uh, new. That's not something anybody missed, right? It's pretty popular. But the problem is that I don't think people know the real story behind the Lutz family and their crazy escapade in the house. I have a confession to make. What? I've only heard it by name and heard you talk about it. I've never seen the movie. I've never heard. I don't know the Lutz family. Oh, well, we're going to talk about this it is today. Be, I did miss this. This is going to be 1000% educational for this podcaster. So I'm excited as well. Perfect. Well, the reason that I picked this is actually yesterday, so that would be the 17th or the 16th, maybe, I'm not sure, um, Ronald DeFeo Jr. was found dead in his cell in a correctional facility in New York Mm. at the age of 69 years old. Ah. So I thought, what a fitting time to talk about this one. On St. Patrick's Day, what a fitting time. Yeah, sure. (laughs) So let's start with the dad, Ronald DeFeo Sr. He wanted to be part of the American dream when he purchased the house on 112 Ocean Boulevard in Amityville, Long Island. He'd been raised in Brooklyn and had worked hard in his father-in-law's Brooklyn Buick dealership. Say that five times fast. Brooklyn Buick. It's hard. Anyway, after many years of hard work, it finally began to pay off for him and his family and money was no longer a concern. So he finally made the decision to leave the city and move to Long Island. The home he chose is a classic piece of Americana, something that 
everybody recognizes immediately as soon as they see it. It kind of looks like it has glowing eyes staring at you. It's a little creepy. Oh, yeah. It's one of those where it has like the two kind of pie-shaped windows on either side. We have a lot of them here. Oh, yeah, yeah, Kind of shaped like a barn. The roof is kind of barn-shaped. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I don't know what style that is. I mean, I'm familiar with the Cape Cod and all that, but I'm not familiar with that. But we do see a lot of them out here on the eastern seaboard. Right. Yeah. Well, the house was two stories plus an attic. It had several rooms and a boathouse that was on the Amityville River. There was plenty of room for him, his wife, Louise, and four children. A signpost in the front yard read, High Hopes. Isn't that cute? Is that where uh, Fallout Boy lives? <laughs> Are they it's the ones Fall that Fallout Boy? No, it's um, Panic at the Disco. Panic at the Disco. They sound like exactly know the they same. they do. It's hard yeah, to tell. Really whiny. Yeah. It was a symbol to the DeFeos of what they thought the house was going to be, right? But their outward appearance of wealth, success, and happiness wasn't really how it was. And I mean, is it really, though? That seems to be the case for most people. That funny commercial years ago where like, they say, Joe's got a brand new riding lawnmower. Joe is in debt up to his eyeballs. Right. Everybody's like that, right? And they're always, uh, no one's as wealthier. I mean, I guess I shouldn't say no one, but most people. Right. Driving around their fancy cars in debt. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Ronald was hot-tempered and he would often fly into a rage or become violent. There were loud fights between him and Louise, and he intimidated his children by being a very demanding authority figure. So it was that the oldest child, Ronald Jr., got to bear the brunt of his father's temper and extremely high expectations. As a young boy, Ronald Jr., or Butch, was overweight and shy. He was often the victim of school bullies and was unpopular with other children. His father encouraged him to stick up for himself, but... I mean, of course, he only meant at school and not at home. Yeah. Against him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Ronald Sr. had no tolerance for backtalk and disobedience, keeping his eldest son on a short leash and refusing to let him stand up for himself the way he was told he was supposed to do. Very confusing. Yeah. So you mean to tell me a heavyset kid named Butch was made fun of in school? Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Couldn't see that one coming. Right. Yeah. Well, so children you know, usually grow up, right? Well, well Butch was no yeah. exception. And he grew up and gained in size and strength oh, and was no longer a sitting duck for his father's abuse. Mm. Once shouting matches now turned into boxing matches, as father and son came to blows over what seemed like the smallest arguments. Ronald Sr. realized that his son's temper and violent streak were very unusual, even in relation to his own. He and his wife arranged for their son to visit a psychiatrist but it didn't help because Butch just was like passive aggressive with the therapist and didn't want to listen. He rejected mm. anything the therapist was saying. Yeah. So he decided he didn't need any help. That's what a lot of people like that do. Yeah. You know, I want to say, I want to go on record that that's why I, from day one, have tried to instill fear and intimidation in my kids. Perfect. So when they get bigger, they won't try to knock me out. Got it. So. I don't think it worked for the DeFeos. <laughs> no, it didn't at all. Well, not knowing how to handle him, the DeFeos decided on a perfect strategy. They were just going to buy him anything he wanted and give him lots of money. Great. Perfect. At the age of 14, his father presented him with a $14,000 speedboat to cruise the Amityville River. Nice. Because that's what a 14-year-old needs, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds sounds very safe and responsible. Great idea. Yeah. Yeah. 
Whenever Butch wanted money, all he had to do was ask. And if he wasn't in the mood to ask, he just took it. By the age of 17, Butch was made to leave his private religious school. By this time, he'd begun using serious drugs such as heroin, LSD, and speed. Wow. And he had also become a petty thief. His violent behavior was becoming increasingly psychotic. That sounds crazy. Increasingly psychotic. Yeah, especially mixed with all those drugs and things. Right. Yeah. And now it his behavior wasn't confined to his home. It was now reaching to outside things. So yeah. it's starting to yeah. get not so great. Starting to branch out. Yeah. One afternoon while he was on a hunting trip with some of his friends, he pointed his loaded rifle at one of the guys that was with them, mm-hmm. somebody he'd known for years. And he watched with like a stone face as the young man, like his face just completely turned white because he was so scared. He ran away and then Butch just calmly lowered his gun. When they caught up with their friend later that afternoon, Butch asked him why he had left so soon. Because, <laughs> I mean, that's normal, right? Yeah. A <laughs> L- little creepy, a little crazy. Oh, where'd you go, bud? Yeah, hey, why'd you leave so fast? <laughs> well, I don't know, maybe the rifle uh, in the face? The, the 12-gauge next to my nose yeah, might have been a, yeah. your first clue. At the age of 18, Butch was given a job at his grandfather's Buick dealership. Oh, the Brooklyn Buick. Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah. It was a really easy job and not much was expected of him. Regardless of whether or not he showed up for work, he received a cash allowance from his father at the end of each week. How do I sign up for that? Yeah, no kidding. Wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah. Whether or not you show up, you still get your pay. Like, that's cool. So he used the money he got for his car, which, of course, his parents purchased for him, Mm -hmm. and for alcohol and drugs. Again, like I said, speed and heroin were his two main ones. Altercations with his father were growing ever more frequent and became even more violent. You know, I can I comment real yeah, quick? Yeah, go ahead. I don't know a lot about drugs, but I do know that heroin's like a big downer. And like, I mean, the people that are on heroin walking around the streets of Boston are like zombies. And sometimes yeah. just like keeled over. And doesn't speed make you like speed yeah. up and want to, mm-hmm. do you use one to offset the other? I, mean, I don't know. Maybe? That could be that could be what he yeah. was doing. I don't know. I don't know. That's, that's a weird combo. Yeah. Not a good combo, probably. No, no. Well, one evening, a fight broke out between Mr. and Mrs. DeFeo. In order to settle the matter, Butch grabbed a 12-gauge shotgun from his room, loaded a shell into the chamber, and charged downstairs. Without hesitating or calling out to break up the fight, Butch pointed the barrel of the gun at his father's face and told him he was going to kill him if he did not leave his mother alone. Mm. Butch pulled the trigger. Oh, boy. But the gun mysteriously did not go off. Oh. Yeah. Well, there's usually no mystery with that. You said he put a bullet in, right? Yeah, he put... He put a cake, he put something in there. <laughs> Ronald Sr. was frozen in place and watched in grim amazement as his own son lowered the gun and simply walked out of the room with casual indifference to the fact that he had almost just killed his dad. <laughs> that fight may have been over, but the incident foreshadowed the violence he would soon unleash on his entire family. Hmm. I mean, you got to have the guy committed after that, right? Yeah, that's a bit much, I think. I wouldn't just like go about my business. Oh, well, almost died. That's not something you can just buy off now. Yeah, the gun needs to be removed from the from the room or the yeah. kid needs to be removed from the home and go away. Exactly. Well, in the weeks before the killings, the relationship between Butch and his father had finally reached its breaking point. Butch, who was, you know, completely disappointed with the money he had earned from his father, earned in quotes there. Received. Yeah. Yeah. Had devised a scheme to further defraud his family. 
two weeks before the slayings, which was sent on an errand by one of the staff at the Buick dealership. He was given the responsibility of depositing $1,800 in cash and $20,000 in checks to the bank. I'm not sure who thought that was a good idea. But anyway, Butch arranged to be robbed on his way to the bank by an acquaintance who he told he would split the money with. Butch and another accomplice from the dealership departed for the bank at about 1230 that afternoon. Two hours later, they returned saying they'd been robbed at gunpoint while they were waiting at a red light. Ronald Sr. was at the dealership when his son returned and exploded with rage when he heard Butch's story, berating the staff member who had sent him in the first place. <laughs> like, really? Yeah. The police were called, and when they arrived, they naturally asked to speak to Butch. However, instead of pretending to cooperate or even coming up with some kind of a description of a bandit, I mean, you could have at least had a story of some sort ready yeah, to go. Yeah. He just became really tense and irritable with the police. He was really violent. And as they began to suspect that he was lying, their questions started to focus on the two hours when he was away. Like, why didn't he hurry back to the Buick dealership once he'd been robbed of all that money? Or where had he been the whole entire time? I think those are good questions. Yeah. You'd think those would be uh, covered. Yeah. Well, Butch yeah. didn't like that at all. And he began to bang on the hood of a car in the lot to emphasize how angry he was. Mm. The police backed off for a moment, but Ronald Sr. had already come to his own conclusion about his son. I mean, it's pretty obvious. I came to it a while ago with the shotgun in the face right. and pulling the trigger. Yeah. That's enough for me. On the Friday before the murders, Butch had been asked by the police to come to the station to look at some of the mug shots in the possibility that he might be able to identify the thief. At first he agreed, but then he decided not to at the last minute. When Ronald Sr. heard of this... He confronted his son at work, demanding to know why he wouldn't cooperate with the police. Butch then ran to his car and sped off. In the early morning hours of Wednesday, November 14th, 1974. It's my parents' anniversary, not 1974, but November 14th, my parents' anniversary. Oh, happy anniversary, guys. Happy anniversary. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So November 14th. <laughs> I'm like, where was I? Talking about my parents. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, it happened. It was, a, it was a quiet morning. It was kind of foggy yeah. over in Amityville. The stray house pets and the odd car were the only signs of life as families and neighbors slept peacefully in their homes. The entire DeFeo family had gone to bed, with the exception of Butch. As he sat in the quiet of his room, he knew what he wanted to do. He couldn't stand his father or his family any longer. Butch was the only member of the family with his own room because of his, how violent he was. <laughs> But also because he was the oldest. Yeah. <laughs> Here, we're just going to reward you with all these things because you're, right? the, you're the big jerk, most violent. Here's your own room and yeah, right. guns and everything else you need. Exactly. In his room, he was able to make a private storage place for a number of weapons he collected and sometimes sold. On the night of the murders, Butch selected a 35 caliber Marlin rifle from his closet and went towards his parents' bedroom. Mm. He quietly pushed aside the door to their room, and for just a moment, he watched them as they slept, completely unaware of the horror at the foot of their bed. Then, without hesitation, Butch raised the rifle to his shoulder and pulled the trigger. The first shot ripped into his father's back, tearing through his kidney and exiting through the chest. Ugh. Butch fired another round, again hitting his father in the back. This shot pierced the base of Ronald Sr.'s spine and lodged in his neck. By now, Louise DeFeo had woken up and barely had a few seconds to figure out what was going on and react before he began to fire on her. Butch aimed the weapon at his mother and fired two shots into her body. 
The bullet shattered her ribcage and collapsed her right lung. Both bodies now lay silently in fresh pools of their own blood. Yuck. I wonder if this is where the um, Menendez brothers got their inspiration, if you will. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people, bad people throughout history have wanted to kill their parents or something, but this sounds similar. They weren't sleeping, but still, they just walked downstairs with a gun and... Yeah. See ya. Well, despite the sound of each rifle shot, no one else woke up in the house, which I find so strange. Didn't we have another story like that a couple yeah, episodes our first ago? One. Yeah, no, it was our first one. How does that happen? I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking rifle shots are pretty distinctive, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. they're distinctive if they happen, you know, three houses down. Yeah. Inside the house. I mean, that's not only distinctive, that's like loud. Yeah, and he's so far has discharged four bullets. Yeah, and you've gone shooting with me before, and we're wearing the earmuffs, and it's still quite loud. Right. I'm a pretty heavy sleeper. If a gunshot goes off in my house, I will wake up. I mean, I I, I would hope so. I don't understand that for both of these. Uh, Yeah, I know. That's insane. Well, because of this, Butch quickly looked around at what he had done and then made his way to the rest of the family. His two young brothers, John and Mark, would be the next victims. He entered the bedroom the two boys shared and stood between their two beds. Standing directly above his two brothers, Butch fired one shot into each boy. The bullets tore through their bodies, destroying their internal organs. Mark lay motionless while John, now here's some gruesome. <laughs> oh, everybody. A little, uh, skip ahead. Yeah, just like five seconds if five you don't want to hear it. Ready? Three, two, one, go. So John's spinal cord had been severed, so his body kept twitching for a few moments after he was shot. Hmm. Yikes. Cool. No, not cool at all. Gross. Is that what happens if that... I don't know. I don't have any idea, but apparently... I mean, that's where all the nerve endings are, right? So yeah. you're still... Your body's like... So he's like laying there twitching. Malfunctioning, basically, while it dies. Right. Crazy. All right. Well, again, the shots had not roused the only remaining members of the DeFeo family. Still? Still. And Butch went unchallenged to the bedroom of his sisters, Dawn and Allison. As Butch entered the room, Allison stirred and looked up just as he lowered the rifle to her face and pulled the trigger. Mm. His youngest sister was murdered instantly. Butch aimed his weapon at Dawn's head as well, literally blowing the left side of her face off. Hmm. Yikes. Is this area of New York, do you know, is it a bad area? I mean, no, it's like a sweet little town. Because I was going to say that if you, if you're accustomed to hearing gunshots in the middle of the night and they don't rouse you, that's a telltale sign. Right. You live in the ghetto. In the ghetto. <laughs> yeah. That's a, I, yeah, I don't, no. I don't understand a, this. This is a quiet little neighborhood, like a sweet little town. So it was just after 3 a.m. In less than 15 minutes, Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr. had brutally killed each defenseless member of his family. The DeFeo, this is so sad. The DeFeo's dog Shaggy was tied up by the boathouse, mm. and he was barking like crazy about what had just happened in the house. He heard the gunshots. I know. Poor Shaggy. Yeah. Why'd they tie him at the boathouse? Let him inside. I, I don't know. Not everyone treats their dog That's like so we mean. do. Ugh. Well, Butch wasn't distracted by the barking, and he knew that now, what he, now that he had done what he'd planned to do, he needed to clean himself up and establish an alibi to throw the inevitable police investigation off the trail. Can I... Yeah. Can I ask a, an absurd question that you, of course, don't know? 
Okay. It's more for the audience just to add a little color here. How, sure. How do we know they weren't woken up by the gunshots? I'm really stuck on this thing. I think probably based on his final when he finally confessed everything, he probably told them what was going on. Okay, because I'm I'm like I'm thinking as you're also, speaking, you they're ha- all dead. Right. So how, who speaks to that? But you have to assume that since they were all in their beds, they obviously didn't get up and go, "What's going on?" Because that's the yeah. first thing I would yeah. do is jump out of my bed and run to the hall and find out what's going on. Okay, I, that makes sense. So they were all, right, all in you. their beds. Yeah. Um, I, I probably won't post them because I'm not sure that's a good idea oh instagram will take that stuff down better be careful right well there's actual crime scene pictures of the bodies and they're like in sleeping positions Mm. like they were still sleeping gotcha okay yeah Yeah. so anyway butch calmly showered trimmed his beard and dressed in his jeans and work boots he then collected his bloodied clothing and the rifle wrapped them up in a pillowcase and headed out to his car he threw the evidence into the car and took off Butch drove from the suburbs into Brooklyn and disposed of the pillowcase in a storm drain. Nice. I haven't heard of the uh, storm drain disposal before. Hey. He then returned to Long Island and reported to work at his grandfather's Buick dealership, business as usual. Yeah. (laughs) So by this time, it's 6 a.m. Butch did not remain at work for long, though. He pretended to call home a few times, and when his father failed to show up for work, He acted as though he were bored and he had nothing to do and he decided to leave at noon. Hmm. He called his girlfriend, Sherry, to let her know that he would be home early from work and that he wanted to stop by and see her. On his way back into Amityville, Butch passed his friend Bobby Kelsky and the two stopped to talk. Butch proceeded on to Sherry's house, arriving at about 1.30. When he got to Sherry's, Butch casually mentioned that he'd tried to call home several times and although the cars were in the driveway, they didn't answer the phone. To demonstrate, he called from Sherry's apartment with the same predictable result. Ah, he's putting together his alibi? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Acting puzzled but not concerned, he took Sherry shopping. That's so nice. Oh, that's nice. From the mall, they drove to Bobby's house. Ronald gave Bobby the same report he'd given Sherry, that his family appeared to be home, but that there was no answer when he called on the phone. Bobby said that he was going to take a nap and that if Butch wanted to meet him later, he would be at a local bar called Henry's around 6 p.m. I wonder if he was really acting like playing it up like, I don't know where my family is. Where could they be? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Butch spent the remainder of the afternoon visiting friends, drinking and taking heroin. He finally arrived at Henry's after six and Bobby followed him in shortly thereafter. Once again, Butch feigned concern over his inability to reach anyone at home. He decided that he needed to go home and check on his family, saying that he was going to have to break in through the window, which I don't understand. (laughs) If you're living there, don't can't you? go i'm confused i, I mean yeah, i don't know that, why that's got to be the heroin talking that yeah, he uh he obviously wants to show that to somebody broke in and right. killed my family maybe i don't know normally you wouldn't have to do that yeah i wonder if there's more to that story that he told yeah like why would he Bobby? say he had to break in yeah like, well and he, then we'll hear he later on that he did he broke in through the kitchen window to get into the house yeah i wonder if like they just didn't trust so him with know. a house key yeah, or what i don't weird. know really strange if i was bobby heroin or not i'd be like why don't you have a key yeah (laughs) what's going on here well ronald exited the bar on his supposed journey of discovery only to return within a few minutes in a state of agitation and dismay asking for help and saying someone had shot his mother and father the two friends were joined by a small group of people from the bar and they all piled into butch's car with bobby at the wheel 
It had been approximately 15 hours since the murders took place. Within moments after arriving at the house, Bobby had entered the front door and raced upstairs into the master bedroom. There lay the bodies of Ronald Sr. and his wife, Louise. He returned outside to find Butch beside himself with grief, I'm sure. Joey Yeswit had found the telephone in the kitchen and was calling the police. Oddly enough, if you search up um, Joey's emergency phone call, they have like the transcript of it. (laughs) It's actually like really exasperating. (laughs) He's trying to like tell them that this is, there's something going on. They're like, what are you talking about? Like they're not understanding what he's saying. They ask him to spell his name like several times. He's like, what are you talking about? I just did. He's like getting so agitated. So if you have time, go look that up. I might, maybe I'll see if I can post it. Yeah. But anyway, within 10 minutes, the first policeman was on the scene. Officer Kenneth Gaguski. I hope I'm saying that right. Gaguski. Gaguski. <laughs> As he arrived, he found a group of men gathered on the DeFeo's front lawn. Butch was among them, sobbing uncontrollably, saying that his mother and father were dead. Hey, vil- sorry. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go. I just have a dumb joke. What's the over-under that Gaguski's nickname was Goose? That'd be awesome. It's got to be, right? That's, yeah. I, I mean, I would. <laughs> yeah. Well, the village of Amityville um, sent a patrolman to enter the house, and immediately he went upstairs. He first discovered the bodies of Ronald Louise, as well as those of John and Mark. He returned downstairs to call the police. So this is such a small town, they just have like a patrolman. It's yeah, a village. Like a, I mean, it's like a little a constable or something. Little guy, right? Yeah, definitely not prepared for um, yeah, this. He's at like, all. let's bring yeah. in the big guys because yeah. I can't do this. <laughs> kind of like our town. I, I imagine that would happen if we had some mass murder here. Yeah, I would think they'd probably I call mean, the state police. Yeah, they're actual police, that. but there's yeah. like 10 cops or something, you know? Yeah. Ronald was seated at the kitchen table, still crying. As he listened to Graguski's description, he alerted the officer to the fact that he also had two sisters. Graguski put the receiver down and hurried back upstairs. By this time, another village patrolman had arrived, Officer Edwin Tyndall. The two of them found Don and Allison's room together. It would take a forensics investigator to locate where the girls had been shot and what kind of gun had killed them. There was too much blood for the officers to even begin to guess. Gross. Yeah. Shortly after 7 p.m., the neighborhood was buzzing with word of what had happened. The house itself was filled with police personnel, while neighbors and assorted gawkers gathered on the front lawn. You know, little rubberneckers. Of course, you got to be there, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure I would be. But that's, I guess that's the true crime lover in me. Yeah. Hey, real quick. You're mm-hmm. you're painting a beautiful true crime painting with your words. I really feel Thank like you. I'm there. It made me think of a question for you. Have you ever been around a lot of blood like that or a dead no. body or anything? Nope. It smells not like death, but the blood smells like like um. So I've like metallic. heard right. I've heard like from reports of crimes that I've heard about that yeah, it's like an unmistakable like metallic smell. Yeah, with that amount of blood, I can't imagine. I mean, don't right. ask audience why I know this. I've been around a few dead bodies in my day, but have you? Yeah. When? A couple at Disneyland. We shall discuss this later. And uh, someone at the racetrack, but. One of them in particular, well, since you brought it up, one of them in particular, somebody was hit by a speeding car Mm -hmm. and their body just obliterated. So there was like literally blood everywhere. And so I'm standing there and unbeknownst to me um, amongst like blood splatter on the ground. And when I got out there, I'm like, why does Harbor Boulevard smell like metal? Yeah. (laughs) 
and it's like, oh, there's blood everywhere. Yeah. Oh my <laughs> so, gosh. Yeah, it was pretty gross. No but, thanks. Yeah. Well, now that you mention it, though, yeah, my thumb incident. <laughs> yes, there was quite a lot of blood. You can, I, I can smell. You can smell it for oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what I'm saying. The reason I even brought this up and went on this tangent is that amount of blood must have smelled so bad. I'm sure. Plus the death mixed well, in. Well, they've oh. been dead for 15 hours by God, now. Yeah. So, well, Suffolk County Detective Gaspar Rendazzo. Oh, that's a great name. Yeah, it is. He he needs to be like in a rock band though. Rendazzo with that kind of a name. Rendazzo and Graguski sounds like an I awesome law firm or I something. No, right? Well, they were the first to question Butch the massacre's sole survivor. They sat together in the DeFeo kitchen as Rendazzo asked Butch who he thought could have done such a thing. Butch named Louis Fellini after just a moment's pause. Fellini was a notorious mafia hitman (laughs) whom Butch claimed held a grudge against his family as a result of an argument between the two of them a few years prior. (laughs) I'm laughing because I just pictured this big kind of dopey guy. And do you know who might have done this? Mm. Louis Fellini. <laughs> right? Bam. He paused for like that, a second and then that's said That's like, it. hoist your red flag. <laughs> yeah. Red flag, red flag. Because if you know it that quickly, then you're involved, at least. For I mean, sure. Right? Right. <laughs> oh, boy. Poor Butch. Yeah. The interview continued at the next door neighbor's house where a temporary police command center had been established. Poor next door neighbor. Like, geez, just take over the house already. Yeah. Well, detect. <laughs> here's another good one. Detective Gerard Gozoloff. Yeah. <laughs> the law offices of Re- what was his name? I don't even know. Remdesvir Ren- and Rendaza. Randaza. Randaza Graguski and Gozoloff. Gozoloff. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, he decided to join in the process here. It was suggested that if the murders were indeed linked to organized crime, that Butch might still be a target, and that any further questioning should take place at police headquarters. It was here that they joined a third detective in the mix, Joseph Napolitano. That's a lot oh, easier to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Butch finally gave police his written statement. In it, he claimed to have been home the night before and that he stayed up until 2 a.m. watching the film Castle Keep on television. I don't mm. even know what that is. I don't either. But they said that was what he was watching. Wow. At 4 a.m., he reported walking past the upstairs bathroom and that his brother's wheelchair was in the front of the door. He also claimed to have heard the toilet flush. Since he couldn't go back to sleep, he decided to head to work early. Hmm. Smart. Yeah. Yeah. He described the rest of his day leaving work early, visiting with Sherry and Bobby, drinking, and trying to reach his family by telephone. Hmm. He said that when he finally returned home to check on his family, he entered the house through a kitchen window. Like you do. Yeah, because that's, you know, where you enter a house. Yeah. And went upstairs where he discovered his parents' bodies. Mm-hmm. Upon his discovery, he raced downstairs and back to Henry's bar, where he rounded up some men. That sounds like pitchforks, everybody. <laughs> who subsequently alerted the police. Yeah. A crime has occurred, men. Henceforth, we shall conquer. I don't know. I just have to say, New York truly is a melting pot with all those last names. <laughs> you gotta. Oh, they all sound Italian. Graguski? Oh, maybe not that one. Did I miss this in the beginning? But what year is this? Uh, 1974. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. After Butch submitted his signed statement, the detectives continued to question him about his family, about his suggestion that Louis Fellini might be the killer. Butch replied that Fellini had lived with them for a period of time, and during that time he had helped Butch and his father carve out a hiding space in the basement where Ronald Sr. kept a stash of gems and cash. 
His argument with Fellini had stemmed from an incident where Fellini criticized some work Butch had done at the auto dealership. I mean, that is enough to kill someone for sure. Yeah, it is. Don't you criticize my work. Seriously. (laughs) Butch also voluntarily confessed to being a casual user of heroin, as well as to the fact that he had set one of his father's boats on fire so that Ronald Sr. could collect on an insurance claim rather than paying for the motor, which Butch had originally damaged. Can I can I say that I, I don't think it's possible to be a casual user of heroin? Yeah, I don't think that's I think it's impossible. You can just every now and then have. I think eventually you start to. Yeah, that is not it. something you're like. Oh, I'm just going to have a have a little heroin spot before yeah. bed, and then maybe a week later try it again. Doesn't work that way. No, I don't think so. I don't know though. I'm not a heroin. Well, back in no, I, person, I'm not either. So Never done it, but you I know. can imagine. I'm sure it's not fun to be in the grip of such a terrible thing. Everything I've ever seen on TV and Yeah, it looks awful. In the field as they say is uh it, you can't it's not casual. Yeah. Yeah. Well, around 3 a.m. the detectives had finished their questioning and Butch went to sleep on a cot in the back filing room. So far the detectives had no reason to hold Butch. But as investigators continued to examine physical evidence, that idea began to change. A crucial discovery was made around 2:30 a.m. on November 15th when Detective John Chervell was making a last sweep through the DeFeo bedrooms. Rooms where the murders had taken place had been scoured thoroughly, while Ronald's room had so far been given just like a once-over. They didn't like comb through it like the others. But upon a second look, Detective Chervell spotted a pair of rectangular cardboard boxes, both with labels describing their recent contents. Marlin rifles, a .22, and a .35. Mm-hmm. Chervelle was unaware that a 35 caliber Marlin had been the murder weapon, but snagged the boxes anyway in the event that they may be important evidence. Well, that would end up being true. Shortly after arriving at police headquarters with the new evidence, Chervelle learned exactly what make of weapon had been used in the murders. Subsequent questioning of Bobby Kelsky led to the discovery that Butch was a gun fanatic. Bobby also told police that he had staged the robbery of the cash and checks from the dealership. Now the detectives on the case began to seriously consider the possibility that Butch had been lying to them. You think? Yeah. That he may be their suspect, that he at least knew much more about the killings than what he had told them so far. At 8.45 a.m., Detective George Harrison, not the Beatle, (laughs) this detective, shook Butch awake, read him his rights, and took him into the station. Two other officers, Lieutenant Robert Dunn and Detective Dennis Rafferty, obviously not from around this area. I don't know. <laughs> did he when he when he cuffed him, George Harrison? Did he say, "Butch, get down on your knees"? Is that George what? Harrison? Layla? Oh, it's Eric no, Clapton. Ooh, and that's a bad. I'm so bad. Ooh, that's bad. That it was between the two of them. Eric Clapton stole his wife. What? Yes, that's Layla. How did I miss did that? Did you not know that story? No. Yes. His wife Patty. Eric Clapton and her like oh my had God. a little love affair. He wrote Layla for her. I am perfect for this show because I'm you stupid are. and I miss you everything. Miss everything. <laughs> so it's kind of weird well, that you chose that song. Sorry, George and Eric Clapton. <laughs> also sorry for that musical interlude. How dare you? That was beautiful. Anyway, so these two detectives meant business. Rafferty reread Butch's rights and proceeded to question the suspect about his activities and whereabouts over the prior two days. Mm. Rafferty zeroed in on the time of the murders 
In his statement, Butch had said that he heard his brother in the bathroom at 4 a.m. But since the whole family were still in their pajamas, detectives knew they hadn't been killed in the afternoon after Butch had gone to work. Rafferty continued to press Butch until he was able to pry him away from his earlier version of when the crime took place, establishing that the crime actually took place between 2 and 4 a.m. With his slight fissure, Butch's story began to crumble. I think that's a little presumptuous on the detective's part, the pajama thing. I mean, it could have been like um, Grandpa Joe. They were all in their beds. Yeah, like Grandpa Joe. No, a whole entire family, no. That's how it was in uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah, that was also a fantastical story. I'm just saying, if I'm a detective, my first thought's going to be, this is Grandpa Joe's family. And maybe they were killed at a different time. Maybe that's why you're not a detective. (laughs) Probably. Or singer. (laughs) Barely a podcaster. (laughs) Barely. (laughs) Dunn and Rafferty hammered at the discrepancies between Butch's stated version of the events and what the physical evidence led police to believe actually happened. Butch was physically linked to the scene once the time of the murders was established. At first, Butch tried desperately to make the best out of a bad situation, trying to lead the detectives to believe that while he had indeed been present in the home during the murders, he had only been in each bedroom after the murders had taken place. So we're just going to keep changing our story slightly each time. But luckily, the police weren't biting. More desperate than ever, Butch continued to lie, even as his lies put him more squarely in the middle of the murders. He told his interrogators that at 3.30 a.m., Louis Fellini woke him up and put a revolver to his head. This is new development. Another man was present in the room, Butch said, but upon further questioning, he could not provide any kind of physical description for the police. According to Butch's new version of events, Fellini and his companion led Butch from room to room, murdering each one of his family members. The police let Butch keep talking, and he eventually implicated himself as he described how he gathered and then discarded evidence from the crime scene. So after a long trial process, on Friday, November 21st, 1975, Ronald DeFeo Jr. was found guilty of six counts of second-degree murder. Two weeks later, he was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison on all six counts. He was incarcerated with the New York State Department of Corrections, where he remained until yesterday. Well, like actually yesterday? Oh, yeah, he died. He died at the age of 69. Yeah. And the autopsy reports do not have a cause of death just yet. Mm. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. COVID-19. Might as well. Yeah. Just chalk it up. Add another number. Why not? Yeah. So this is the part of the story that everybody knows, or at least I thought everybody knew. Mm -hmm. Okay. Jay Anson's novel, The Amityville Horror, yeah. was like huge. It was a huge success. It was written as a work of nonfiction. So he said this is a true story. And the book apparently tells the day-to-day events that drove the new residents of High Hopes from their home in terror. George and Kathy Lutz moved into 112 Ocean Avenue on December 18th. Mm-hmm. 28 days later, they fled from their home. The book became a bestseller and was made into a popular movie starring Rod Steger, Margot Kidder, and James Brolin. I think everybody's pretty much seen that one. Wait, I haven't. You haven't seen the Amityville Horror? No, I haven't. And I thought that I thought this was all leading up to that it was about these murders, and it's not. I, I mean, well, I'll tell you in a minute. You, you'll, it'll all come. I'm flabbergasted to a, over here. It'll all come to a head here in just a oh, moment. Oh, good. Yes, we're gonna squeeze it. Squeeze it. <laughs> 
Gross. <laughs> the one vital difference between truth and fiction is what paranormal investigator Dr. Stephen Kaplan spent many years trying to expose in regard to the Amityville horror. In horror. Quotes. Yeah. Now deceased, Dr. Kaplan was a well-respected Long Island parapsychologist. Mm. He was the founder of Parapsychology Institute of America. Oh. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty expert to me. Yeah. On February 16th of 1976, shortly after the Lutz family fled from the house, Dr. Kaplan received a phone call from George Lutz, requesting that Dr. Kaplan and his associates investigate the house. As Dr. Kaplan recalled in his account of the incident, um, he wrote a book called The Amityville, Amityville Horror Conspiracy. Oh. This initial conversation immediately began to arouse his suspicions as to the validity of George's claim that the house was haunted by demons and all variety of evil spirits. Mm. He basically said that because of the murders in the home, the house was completely possessed. Yeah. It is. Mm-hmm. I believe that. Sure. He asked questions to which George could not come up with answers for, or he refused, refused to tell him names and details. There are even more discrepancies as to whether he had dabbled in the occult or not, with George flip-flopping between his stories. Dr. Kaplan's doubts about the validity of the Lutz haunting were confirmed a year and a half later when he received a copy of, of the Amityville Horror. Mm. Reading it from cover to cover, he swiftly came to the conclusion that George had indeed done his witchcraft and demonology homework. The account was packed with every sort of ghost, ghoul, poltergeist, and demon, all of which employed every trick in the book to terrorize the Lutz family, but could not scare them into leaving for an entire month. I'm sorry. Any poltergeist or demon in my house, I'm out. Yeah. Burn the I place mean, down. We really I'm done. We really tried hard to buy this house. If we walked in on day one and there was a poltergeist, I'd give it a shot. I mean. No. Nope. So much nope. <laughs> First, you have to go through that whole process of is this a poltergeist? So you give it a couple days and you see it a couple times. Am I hallucinating? Am I imagining? I can see it taking a month to figure that out. Mm. I don't know. I'm on the Lutz's side here. Well, if you read the book and the accounts of the things that happened, it's insane. Like totally insane. Like fantastical insane. Like it's impo- impossible. Like, I'm trying to think of some of them. Like one of them was um, their daughter, had a friend named Jody DeFeo, which was not one of the children's names at all. Mm. Um, there was one time when like the house just became infested with flies and they couldn't figure out why. I think the Kathy had looked in the mirror and saw like an old lady's face. Mm. And there was no old lady. No, there was no old lady. Okay. George was saying he heard voices. All right. I'm not on their side anymore. Yeah. It was a little weird. Anyway, the inconsistencies and fabrications that Dr. Kaplan had found were these. I'm going to list them for you. The complete exaggeration of the role of a priest friend played in the whole drama. In the book, a priest character named Doc, sorry, Doctor, not Doctor, Father, yeah. Mancuso, is terrorized by a demon while trying to bless the new home. He is then stalked by the specter back to the rectory where he is afflicted with boils, bleeding palms, a fever, and the pervasive scent of excrement in real life a priest did bless the home and did have some concern about the possibility of a haunting but the real priest and rectory were unharmed by any such demon henry's bar which is a scene of butch's shocking revelation is referred to as the witch's brew Ooh. an imaginary police sergeant named gianfrido 
mentions that the police discovered the murders because Butch told the bartender a depiction of events that doesn't even come close to how they really occurred. <laughs> the supernatural phenomena that the Lutzes describe witnessing is too wide-ranging, which is to say that no one home could possibly hold enough demons, spooks, and the like to cause everything they say to happen to them. It's just not possible in one small area. Yeah. For instance... George claims that a porcelain lion leapt from a corner of the living room and bit him on the ankle. Yeah, not possible. George saw a ghostly vision of Ronnie DeFeo Jr.'s head floating in the cellar. (laughs) George and his wife, Kathy, believe they saw the burned impression of a demonic hooded figure on their fireplace. I mean, I'm I'm sorry. After a porcelain lion bites me on the ankle, I'm done. Did they also say when they turned the water on, it had hot and cold running chills? (laughs) Because it sounds like the Haunted Mansion with the floating head. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Kathy levitated above their bed. Kathy looked in the mirror and saw a decrepit elderly woman looking back. The toilets backed up with black smelly ooze and the walls of the house were covered with slime. George and Kathy looked out the living room window and saw a floating pig with glowing red eyes. Oh. No. I'm done. (laughs) Yeah, I, I mean... I don't have a lot of experience with hauntings, but it's usually not this weird demonic no. satanic stuff that this is going right. on. Glowing eyed pigs. Yeah. <laughs> In the end, this tale of horror and demonic possession was debunked by the Catholic Diocese of Rockville Center, the Amityville Police Department, William Weber, which was Butch DeFeo's defense attorney, mm-hmm. the U.S. District Court Judge Jack Weinstein, and even George and Kathy Lutz who ended up recanting parts of their story. I wonder if they were doing this to set themselves up to start making money off the house. So there's lots of conspiracies around why they were doing this. And that was one of them to try to make money. They also have um, found a relationship between the Lutzes and, oh gosh, I can't remember their name, but they're a husband and wife team that are part of the Conjuring series. Okay. They were like actual paranormal psychologists i guess that they believe kind of put them up to doing this and gave them like ideas of what they should say well it's like um it's like the winchester mystery house right it's strange yeah but you have years of claims of you know ghost sightings or whatever and a weird lady and you have no idea whether any of that's true but boom all of a sudden it's a tourist attraction right making tons of money well, I think the biggest proof is that the new owners of 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville were not disturbed by any hordes of curious ghosts. They're fine. Yeah. The only thing that's bothering them is onlookers and crazy drunk people and people on Halloween. Yeah, and true crime podcasts and talking true crime about them. Podcasts talking yeah. about them. So this in fire an in fire fabrication was what I was about to say. That's good. Yes. Good. That's a good one. The entire fabrication detracted from what was in fact the true horror of Amityville, the cold-blooded murder of six innocent people by one of their own family members. I just have a question real quick. Can this um in fired um fabrication um can, is this substantive? <laughs> it could yes, it is extremely substantive. <laughs> It was very substantive. That was good. I feel like I was there, honestly. That was very um, well, I thorough. I thought it was important because everybody knows the story of the haunting in the house. Would you stop saying that? I feel like you're throwing shade my way. I I'm don't not, know. I'm sorry. Any of it. Most, so stop fine, generalizing. Most people, most people know that story, but they don't know the real horror from that house. Yeah. So I think that was really important. I actually read the Amityville Horror book. 
and it mentions like the DeFeos, mm-hmm. but very briefly. And they tried to say that Ronald DeFeo Jr. was hearing demonic voices from the house telling him to kill his family. Mm. So if you read that book, you get this idea that that's why he did it. Also in the movie, there was a new remake with what's his name? Oh, that guy. No, no, no. no what's I his name? Um, Ryan Reynolds. Okay. Yeah. So there's a new remake. I think in 2005 they redid it and they had like a priest come out and say that it was built on an Indian burial ground. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. Not true. Anyway, that was it. That's great. Yeah. I feel like there's not enough time for mine. Should we do mine next week? If you want. You know, I'll burn through it. Mine's a two-parter anyway because it's a very involved story, it turns out. And you know me, listeners, and you, the beautiful Christine. I always like to tie this back to the title of the show. How did we miss that? Well, we've been living in the Boston area for about almost four years now. Yeah. I've never heard of this museum or this thing (laughs) at all. And I just happen to be, oh, I follow this page on Facebook called, um, like, I follow a bunch of different ones, but like Old Dirty Boston or something and all this stuff that kind of talks about New England history and Boston history. And this popped up because on this day, March 18th, the day we record this, not the day you're hearing this, but on March 18th, 1990, 13 works of art were stolen from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston in the early hours of the morning. Wow. What's strange about this is the two thieves. Two? Two guys dressed up as Boston cops. Nice. Were able to get in through the side door because they said they were responding to a disturbance. So being the day after St. Patrick's Day, the guards working there, and I'll get into their names in a minute because it's important. Oh. The guards working there, they knew there was no disturbance because it's in the middle of the night. Right. They're doing their rounds. I, I don't see a disturbance. I don't hear a disturbance. But they took the cop's word at face value because it was the day after St. Patrick's Day. They assumed maybe some revelers were out celebrating and hopped over a fence or did something. So they let them in. Shortly after letting them in, they started saying things like, you know, do you have a criminal record? Whatever. I feel like I should check you. One security guard, who I'll get into in a little deeper in a minute, like I said, noticed that one of the cop's mustaches look fake. Hmm. Although their uniforms look real. When he noticed that observation, the cop started saying, like, do you have a record? And when asking these questions and said, come around the desk, I need to pat you down. Well, he didn't pat him down. He immediately put handcuffs on him, gagged him with tape, taped him up, took both the security officers down to the basement and hooked them up, tied them up to a a radiator pipe. Oh, my. And that's when they started doing their thievery. So I'm just going to read a little bit of history about this because I'm I'm guessing you haven't heard of this either. No, I have not. Like I said in the beginning before we started the show, the FBI has valued their um, the theft at close to five hundred million dollars. Insane. Does in it current list value. what they stole at all anywhere? It does, but and I didn't copy the whole list, but I think that you will know some of these because you're kind of an art dork, right? I mean, sort of. This is what I want to get in on. The museum is offering ten mil- a $10 million reward for information leading to the arts recovery. That's the largest bounty ever offered by a private institution. And the reason they're offering that is because there's been no arrests. Yeah. No clue where this art, 13 pieces of art, went to. 
And you and I were discussing this a little bit today in the car. Like, how? where does that go? Is there some kind of underground uh, art yeah. market where it just continues to trade hands? I can't imagine, like somebody owning a piece of art like this and not talking about it. Right, right. So one of the pieces, which is called The Concert, have you heard of this? Which is only, I think so. It's one of only 34 known paintings by Johannes Vermeer. Yes, I do know then. That's valued at over half of the total. So $250 million for that one painting. Wow. There was a couple other expensive ones in there, like such as The Storm on the Sea of Galilee by Rembrandt. Oh, God, a Rembrandt. Jeez. Other paintings and sketches by Rembrandt, Degas, Manet, and Flink were stolen, along with a relatively valueless eagle hmm. and a Chinese goo. I don't know what that is. I didn't click on it. But these they, what investigators can't figure out and what nobody can figure out is they took this $250 million painting, some other valuable ones in there. And then they left with these two completely valueless items. Maybe so like, they what's just the snatched point? them thinking that they were worth something, not realizing that they're not. Well, that's I why they're know. puzzled. They're like, were these like legit like art heist guys who know their stuff? Or were they just some random thieves that well, I'm going to grab a little of this and I a little mean, of that? And that looks cool. The artists <laughs> you know? they chose are extremely well known. Was it Manet or Monet, by the way? It's Manet. Okay. Didn't I say that? Or did I say Manet? You did, but I, I couldn't tell. No, it's M-A-N-E-T. Yep. Manette. Manet. <laughs> Manet. Yeah, I mean, those are really famous artists. Uh, yeah, even I know them, and I'm dumb. The collection and its layout are permanent, so empty frames remain hanging both in homage to the missing works and wow. placeholders for their return. We gotta go see this. I know, this is super cool, right? We gotta see it and take a picture for the... The social media. So I'm the conspiracy guy on the show, but I decided for the new year. Is it a new year? No, it's not a new year. I mean, sort of. For the next 10,000 downloads. We forgot to mention we've hit 10,000 plus downloads. I Thanks, everybody. Forget. Amazing. That was so exciting. Okay, moving on. I feel like I'm running out of conspiracy theory, so I'm going to start doing a little crime stuff myself. That we seems said a true crime and conspiracy theory podcast. Well, it turns out this one's the best of both worlds, and that's why it's a two-parter. It. Because the FBI believes that the robbery was planned by a criminal organization. Oh. Of course, right? The case lacks strong physical evidence, and the FBI has largely depended on interrogations, undercover informants, and sting operations to collect information. They focus primarily on the Boston Mafia, which includes people like Whitey Bulger, who we've talked about before, and I will mm-hmm. get into him on the next episode when I cover part two. Boy, Whitey's just got his foot in all kinds of things. He really does, man. Jeez. I, I'm learning more about him. We Yeah, and we found out later that he stuff. Yeah. had to do with MK Ultra that we didn't realize. Yeah. Insane. Yeah. So just a little bit of history about the robbery itself. We kind of gave you an overview. It occurred in the early hours of Sunday, March 18th, like I said. They were first witnessed around 12.30 a.m. by several St. Patrick's Day people, celebrators, revelers, if you will, leaving a party near the museum. The two men were disguised as police officers and parked in a hatchback on Palace Road, about 100 feet from the side entrance of the museum. They fit 13 pieces of art in a hatchback? Yeah, I was thinking that too. Like, did they roll them up? Because they didn't take the frames. The frames are still hanging. Oh, they must have. They broke the glass and took them. But do you... That's why I'm saying they must not have had any clue what they were doing. How do you roll up, unless you're Nicolas Cage in National Treasure, how do you roll up a $250 million painting? I mean, you're, you're putting it at risk of 
It was Danny Ocean, wasn't it? Uh, it's got to be, right? Danny. Who else can pull this off? So you again. Right? Oh, Seriously. I wonder if he had 13 other people to carry each piece of art. All of the witnesses <laughs> who saw them, including the two guards, believe that they were actual policemen based on their demeanor and their uniforms okay. were spot on. Because policemen sit in hatchbacks. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, maybe back then. 1990? I don't know. Mm. The museum guards on duty that night were Rick Abath, age 23, and Randy Heston, age 25. Now, I took a particular interest in this part because I'm a security professional. I've been a guard on nighttime rounds. Yeah. I feel these guys right now. Okay. I feel what they're going through. A-B-A-T-H. Is that a bath? A bath? I'm going to draw a bath? <laughs> or is it Abath? I just want to make sure I'm saying it correctly. I don't know. Maybe <clears throat> Abbott? Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. A a bath. I'm just going to go with a bath. Was a regular night watchman, and it was Hestan's first time on the night shift. Now, working in the middle of the night totally sucks. I mean, it's it's rough. What, he's a night watchman? (laughs) No. What? (laughs) I just got Bob Seger in my head. Night moves? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't blame you. That's a good good pull. It's a good tune. Yeah. Um (laughs) Anyway, working in the middle of the night sucks, especially yeah. like an empty museum. I can't you have imagine. no, thank you. You have these tasks that jerks like me, who are the boss, tell you you must go around and scan this tag and make right. sure you check all these points, which ultimately leads to the security guard in the middle of the night trying to stay awake, just checking the points and not actually checking anything. Right. However, that didn't happen on this night, which is a little weird, which is why a bath. Is actually was one of the prime suspects at first and mm. might still be. The policy there maintained that one guard patrolled the galleries with a flashlight and walkie talkie while the other sat at the security desk where they had like cameras and stuff, typical things you've seen right. on TV. Yes. A bath went on first patrol. During his patrol, fire alarms sounded off in different rooms in the museum, but he could not locate any fire or smoke. Now, again, as a security guy, this happens all the time. It does? All the time. Just random fire alarms? Yes, because I'm gonna, I don't want to get too technical. We're running out of time. But like if it's raining and there's a little leak in, the, in an air duct or something, it'll trigger a duct detector because there's a foreign uh, thing in there. So fire alarms go off all the time. It's probably good that they're that sensitive because it'll catch the fire. But they, it also results in a lot of cried okay. wolf, you know. All right. So anyway, they couldn't find any fire or smoke. A bath returned to the security room where the fire alarm control panel indicated smoke in multiple rooms. He assumed some type of malfunction and shut down the panel. Again, happens all the time. I can vouch for this, especially in the middle of the night when the boss isn't there. You just think on your feet and do what you got to do. He went back on patrol and before he completed his rounds, listen to this part, everyone. He made a quick stop at the side entrance of the museum, briefly opened the side door and then shut it again. He didn't tell his partner that he was doing this or why. There was no security checkpoint there. He just went and opened it, looked around, closed it. Now, again, I said I'm a security guy. When you're doing your rounds, you might go check as, hey, is this door secured? And you jiggle the handle or whatever, but you don't just open it and, okay, (laughs) the door opens and then close it. Okay, door closes. That's not something you would do, even if you're an overachiever. (laughs) You know? Exactly. Abath then completed his tour and returned to the security desk around 1 a.m., at which point the other guy began his rounds. At 1.20, the two thieves, we don't have any names on these guys because they haven't been caught, so I just have to right. call them the two thieves. The thieves. The thieves. They drove Danny up to the, and whatever Brad Pitt's name was. <laughs> yeah, what was his name? I don't know. 
Anyway, they drove up to the side entrance, parked and walked up to the side door. They rang the buzzer, which connected them to a bath through the intercom. They explained that they were investigating a disturbance and needed to be buzzed in. Now, again, they knew that there was no disturbance, but they're the cops. And they said, okay, security guys often try to be friendly with the cops. Because they want to be cops. But it was most him of them. that let them in? Yeah. Not he, the other he one? He buzzed them in. Okay. <sighs> Abath could see them on the closed circuit TV wearing what appeared to be real police uniforms. He was not aware of any disturbance, but he, like I said, he theorized that it may have been a reveler who was getting a little too excited. Abath let them in at 1.24 a.m., so they've been there about four minutes. The thieves were let into a locked foyer. Foyer? 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 Whatever. Whatever. That separated the side door from the museum. They approached a bath at his desk and asked if anyone was in the museum and to bring them down. A bath radioed his partner, said, return to the security desk. This is when I talked about he noticed that he had a potentially fake mustache. Mm -hmm. Now that they knew that the the thieves knew that they had the only two people in the museum accounted for, that's when they cuffed them, took them down, and that's when the thefts occurred. Just randomized. They went into different rooms. They each worked a different room and just grabbed these paintings. Like, like I said, it's hard to tell if they knew what they were grabbing or if they were just, oh, I think I'll take this one. I think I'll take that one. And then have no idea what it's worth until after the fact. I wonder if they people had orders for them. Yeah, it's interesting whether mm. this was completely targeted or totally random. Yeah. <clears throat> so this is where it gets a little interesting, too. As they prepared to leave, the thieves checked on the guards one last time and asked them if they were comfortable. So they're nice guys. I mean, everything good? We're leaving, guys. Then they moved to the security director's office. So this would be my office in the building, where they took the video cassettes that recorded their entrance and all the I was just about to ask you if they still had the surveillance. And, you know, nowadays in my realm, we record everything on a digital hard drive, so they wouldn't be able to walk out with that. They'd be carrying huge computers. But back then, you just take the VHS tape and... Yeah. You're gone, you know. They took all the data printouts from the motion detecting equipment because just like in Ocean's Eleven, there's all this high-tech security. The movement, however, was still captured on a hard drive, which remained untouched. The frame for the Shea Tortoni, have you heard of that? Nope. Was left on the security director's desk, almost like an FU. So they left an empty frame of one of the pieces they stole on the desk. Here's a little present for you. The thieves then moved to take the artwork out of the museum. The side entrance doors were opened once again at 2.40 a.m. And again for the last time at 2.45. So they had to make two trips. The entire robbery lasted about 81 minutes. Jeez. So over an hour. But because there's nobody there. And (laughs) even though it's recording all this motion, it would be up to the officers there to monitor that and or record it, which they took the recordings. That's why they they have nothing on this. The next shift of guards arrived later in the morning and realized something was amiss when they could not establish contact with anyone inside to let them in. They called in the security director, who, upon entering the building with his keys, found nobody at the watch desk and called police. The police searched the building, and they finally found the guards in the basement. In total, in closing, 13 works of art were stolen. In 1990, the FBI estimated the value at $200 million and raised it to $500 million by the year 2000. In the late 2000s, some art dealers suggested that the total could be worth upwards of $600 million. Wow. This was considered the largest museum heist in terms of value until it was surpassed by the Dresden Green Vault burglary in 2019. Wow. And that I missed as well. 
So I missed all of this. And the reason why this, I'm sorry, you had something to say. No, I, I was just, I don't remember what I was going to say now. Oh, oh. no, I was going to say, I'm surprised that like internet sleuths haven't been able to find these things. There's people out there that just spend hours and hours on things, seeing, you know, little details people miss. Like well, I'm surprised. I, yeah. And in 1990, you'd be selling this in some kind of underground yeah, marketplace to potentially. Be. Yeah. But nowadays it'd be on the dark web and like Homeland Security monitors that. I mean, you'd think something would turn up. That's why I'm just very confused. Like, is this sitting in someone's private collection and yeah. either A, they don't know, or maybe it's these guys and they just have it in their house. Like why? Though? They're just like kleptos and want to have this art and didn't want to pay for it. Interesting. <laughs> you'd think you would steal it to make money. Right. But I don't know. It could be in another country. Who knows? Who knows? Well, they did have several leads, including, like I said, Whitey Bulger. And a whole slew of other people that we will get into next episode. Can't wait. For now, that's my story. How did I miss this? I don't know. It's right in our backyard. We got to go check crazy. this place We got to go check it out. Yeah. We got to take pictures. All right. Well, if you want any more information or pictures on these cases, please make sure to follow us on social media at How Did We Miss That? And I would like to give a shout out for our theme composition to Audio Anywhere Productions. You can find them at audioanywhereproductions.com. Until next week, keep your head up and look out for each other.